this service, but uh, I want us to honour the man of God just as he comes. Can we stand uh, to our feet and uh, just please put our hands together and welcome Pastor James McPherson as he comes to bring the word. Great. Very good. Hey, uh, while you're on your feet, give the band a big round of applause. You guys did great this morning. Well done. All right. Stay standing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here today. Lord, I thank you no matter who we are, where we've been, or what we've done. Each of us, though, coming from different backgrounds, facing different challenges, all of us greatly loved of God. I pray today, let us be better people because we're in the house of faith today. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. You can have your seats. Great to be with you today. And uh, thank you again to Pastor Adam and Anita for uh, having me. I've really enjoyed your company. have loved your church. Great people here. If I lived in New Zealand, which I never will, but if I did, I would come to this church. Even if I lived in Auckland, I would come to this church. It's a good church. I really like it a lot. Rain. I've just come from a town that was inundated with rain In Townsville, uh, we call Townsville Brownsville because it never rains where I live. Everything is just brown. I think someone mentioned earlier their grass looks like toast. Um, We don't even have grass. Um, But then we had um, uh, the equivalent of a year's rain in Melbourne. We had it in our town in one week. And so we no longer call Townsville Brownsville. We call it Drownsville. And we had 40 families in our church. They lost everything. Uh, People were asking me before the service, were people insured? And uh, people, of course, had their homes insured, but not for flooding. Because in Brownsville, it never floods. You don't expect it to flood. So no one elected for flood insurance. And uh, so we mobilized 300 volunteers in the last week to shovel mud out of people's living rooms. And uh, then took special offering and we just... We, we, we had an offer. We had $40,000 given um, just on one Sunday, just at the end of the service. And I told our team, I don't want any of that money left by the end of the week. I don't want it sitting in a bank account. I want it gone. And, uh, so we just, and, and I don't want to buy vouchers for people. If I'm in trouble, give me cash. If I'm not in trouble, give me cash. Just give me cash. And uh, so we just went around to families and just gave them money. And uh, we had federal and state politicians um, contact me. In fact, a federal politician um, spoke in Parliament about our church, and he made the point that thank God for the church in times of disaster, because most of us look to the government when there's a problem. But how many of you know the government only exists to do what the church is unable to do at this time? The first port of call should be the church, not the government. It's what the malaise of our culture is that we continually look to the state as if it is there to provide for us. When the Bible says the world will know we are Christ's disciples by the way we love one another. When there's trouble, the first place you should be able to go is to the church and the family of God. And uh, our local federal politician said, you know, you guys were able to get money into people's hands quicker with less bureaucracy, less red tape, no administrative costs and no rorting than uh, the government. And we gave more money to families than the government who came in with big fanfare and said, we're going to give cash to every family that's in trouble. People in our church got more cash from us than they got from the government. Praise God for the government. But um, at the end of the day, the church is the answer to, I'm glad that three of you agree with that. And the rest of you are just here for coffee after the service. And by the way, the coffee here is good. So you'll be all right. I'm only going to preach short. We've got an hour and a half together. All right, are you ready? 
Okay, Mark chapter 8. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 says, Jesus came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he'd spat on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked the man, can you see anything? The man looked up and said, I, I see men, or maybe something is moving. Then Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Now it takes only four verses and less than a hundred words to tell. But this to me is one of the most fascinating stories in all of Scripture. It's fascinating in the same way that James LeBron missing a free throw is fascinating. It's fascinating in the same way that Roger Federer missing a simple cross-court forehand is fascinating. In the same way that Lewis Hamilton missing first gear at the start of a Grand Prix is fascinating. Champions aren't supposed to miss. In fact, we know them as champions precisely because unlike most of us, they don't miss. And yet on this occasion, it seems as if the invincible has faltered. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus spits and a deaf mute is instantaneously healed. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus speaks and blind Bartimaeus is immediately cured. But here in Mark chapter 8, we have the peculiar occurrence, unique in all of Jesus' ministry, where a man is healed, not instantaneously. But eventually... After touching him, Jesus says, what do you see? And the blind man squinting and trying hard to focus. says, I, I, I see men or trees. Or, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. And Jesus has to touch him again before his sight is fully recovered. Now, from the first time I heard this story as a kid in Sunday school, I've wondered, and perhaps you have too, why did it take Jesus two shots to heal this man? Why couldn't Jesus heal the man Immediately, well, there's been a few explanations I've heard put forward over the years. Some preachers have taught that the man wasn't healed immediately because he was lacking in faith. Perhaps the miracle took a little longer because he just didn't quite believe hard enough. I think that's unfair. Whilst it's true that sometimes Jesus healed people in response to their faith, there were other occasions where Jesus healed people to help them get faith. And so I don't think the man's belief or lack thereof influenced the events of that day. Uh, there's another possibility. Maybe Jesus was, you know, simply having an off day. Even Tiger Woods occasionally misses a putt and needs two shots to get it right. And so rare as it was on this occasion, Jesus just needed another go. There's an obvious problem with that, isn't there? Lady over here is shaking her head at me thinking we must never have this man preach in our church again. Of course there's a problem with that scenario, and that is that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. He is perfection personified. How many of you know Jesus doesn't have bad hair days? I'd just like to have a hair day. There's a third possibility. What if the man's blindness was particularly severe? I mean, there's blind, and then there's, you know, badly blind. Maybe this man was so blind that extra effort was required. His blindness was so dark, it literally required a double dose to cure it. I have thought long and hard on this question. I've listened to different preachers. I've read Bible commentaries. I've been at conferences where they gave plenty of time to this question. Why did it take Jesus two shots to heal this man? I have come to my own conclusion. Can I share it with you? Here it is. This is going to change your life. I have concluded after much research, study and prayer, no one has the faintest idea. 
why it took Jesus two goes to get this right. But I do know why Mark has included it in his gospel. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject, God's not finished yet. This story is in the Bible for every person who ever felt like they've still got a way to go. It's for every person who ever despaired that the progress I've made seems so small compared to the distance that still remains to be traveled. It's for every person who, when comparing themselves with others, becomes despondent that your progress by comparison seems so slow. Listen, you're not the only one who ever felt like you're not quite there yet. Right here in Holy Scripture, a blind man is touched by Jesus himself only to confess, I can see, sort of. But the good news is, God's not finished yet. Uh, I remember competing in school swimming carnivals, and I always found swimming carnivals as a kid very intimidating. Uh, We'd stand on the starting blocks, and I'd look to my right and my left at boys whose muscular frames were so much more than my lean physique. Uh, They'd be wearing what I like to call racing swimmers. Uh, The young people have a different name for them, but I call them racing swimmers. Uh, They were tight and sleek and manufactured by a company called Speedo to assist them speeding through the water with minimum drag. I, by comparison, would be conspicuous in my Hawaiian-style board shorts, which hung below the knee, looking less like racing swimmers and more like pants that had shrunk in the wash. Uh, They had uh, swimming goggles. I had eyelids. Um... Uh, They had swimming caps. My hair was exposed. The starter's gun would sound and we would dive into, at least they would dive into. Their dives were exquisite. They would dive deep into the pool and emerge 30 metres down the lane. I would jump in but was so skinny that when I landed on the water, I didn't have enough weight to actually submerge. And so I just sort of loiter about a metre from where I jumped in. Having arrived, I would start to swim, or at least I would call it swimming. You would call it like thrashing around like a madman. But in a flurry of arms and legs, I would exert a lot of energy and eventually my thoughts would begin to turn towards the finish and I would become afraid that if I were not careful, I would career headlong into the end of the pool and hurt myself. So I would pause momentarily, pop my head up to survey exactly where I was. And I remember how my heart would sink even as my body would not when I realized I was actually closer to where I jumped in than to where I was going. And that's life for a lot of us. We look at people around us and we wonder, how did you end up there? When I'm back here, we struggle and strain as hard as we can. And occasionally we feel like we're making real progress until reality slaps us in the face and reminds us we've still got a long way to go. We all have times where we feel like the blind man in Mark chapter 8 who opened his eyes expecting everything to be fine only to find things were still a blur. You can be about to embark on a new initiative and become haunted by the fear that maybe I'm not ready for this, still not ready for this. You can be a number of years into something and despairing that despite all the energy I've exerted, I should have gotten further. We've all had times when we looked in the mirror and privately wondered, why is my progress so slow? Why aren't I further along than I am? And the lesson from Mark chapter 8 is that no matter how blurry or hazy things seem, don't give up, don't quit, don't wave the white flag or throw in the towel. God's not finished yet. And how many of you know if God's not finished, neither are you. You know, the anonymous friends of this blind man understood this. We don't know how long he'd been blind. We don't know how many people had given up on him. It's impossible to tell how many people had labeled him hopeless, helpless, a basket case. But someone looked at him and instead of seeing a hopeless case, they simply saw a person with whom God wasn't quite 
finished yet. Hey, listen, when you see me, I need you to see me not as a hopeless case, but as just someone whose God's not quite finished with yet. In 1675, a German man by the name of Hennig Brand became convinced that he could distill his urine and turn it into gold. He was absolutely sure of this. And so history records that he assembled 50 buckets of his own urine, which he stored in the basement of his home. He had a very understanding wife, or else she didn't realize that they had a basement. For many months, he experimented on his own urine, turning it first into a noxious paste and then into a translucent waxy substance. But much to his disappointment, his pee never turned into bullion. Strange thing did happen, though. After a series of months, when exposed to air, his urine began to glow in the dark and would spontaneously burst into flame. It wasn't his wife's cooking. He had accidentally discovered phosphorus, which he learned to his delight he could sell for more per ounce than gold. When I read that, I thought, Hennig Brand is just like Jesus. This is what Jesus does. I mean, Hennig Brand is someone everyone else said, get rid of it. It's toxic waste. And Hennig Brand, no, no, I'm going to hang on to it. It could be treasure. Everyone else said, flush it. Hennig Brand said, no, I'm going to keep it. Because I reckon with a little tinkering, it could end up as valuable. We all need someone to see us when we're at our worst and believe that with a little more time, we might just end up as gold. Thank God. There were some perceptive people who didn't see a blind man. Thank God there's some people in this church who look at you and don't see a divorcee or someone who's been retrenched or someone who's got a diagnosis of a terminal illness. Thank God they looked at him and they didn't see a blind man. They just saw an amazing testimony God hadn't quite finished yet. They brought him to Jesus because they knew if anyone can see potential, it's Jesus. Maybe they'd heard how Jesus met the uh, over-emotional, erratic, undisciplined fisherman named Simon. Simon meant reed, unstable, unreliable, wishy-washy. But they'd heard how Jesus took one look at him and renamed him Peter, which means rock. Everyone else called him Simon, unstable. But Jesus decided not to call him that name because that was nothing more than his present condition. Jesus looked at Simon and said, I'm going to refer to you as Peter because God's not finished with you yet. Maybe they heard how Jesus took time to help and encourage a woman who'd had four divorces and was working on her fifth. She went and drew water in the middle of the day when no one else was around because she didn't want the accusations and the insinuations that came with her sleazy reputation. Of course, Jesus sidles up to her and begins a conversation. She's incredulous. She's wondering, how could you talk to someone like me? Don't you know who I am? And of course, Jesus knew exactly who she was, but Jesus also knew, despite her sordid past, God hadn't finished with her yet. Maybe they'd heard how Jesus looked over the crowds of people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The media commentators mocked them and wrote them off, but Jesus called the crowd a great harvest. Jesus looked at what the upper class declared a rabble, and Jesus said, no, no, they're not a rabble. They're just a group of people with whom God's not finished yet. And so they led their blind friend to Jesus and begged Jesus, please, would you touch him? Our friend is blind. And Jesus smiled and said, it's going to be all right. God's not finished. And if God's not finished with you, then you're not finished. 
You know, one of the things I love about the church is it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been or what you've done. You can come into this place and I don't know why your marriage ended. I don't know why you lost your money. I don't know why you've got that illness. I don't know why you're going through that depression or that problem. But what I do know is God's not finished. We're not going to give you a pat answer, 10 reasons why things have worked out the way they have. Sometimes we're clueless as to why life goes the way it goes. Life has its twists and turns. Sometimes there's things that come right out of left field. There's a lot I don't know, but there's one thing I do. God isn't finished. And if God's not finished, then neither am I. I remember as a youth pastor... Uh, we're getting ready for a, a youth meeting, and uh, we had about 500 teenagers that used to come to youth. And uh, just as we were about to begin the meeting, the, the door of the auditorium opened, and a girl was wheeled into the meeting. Uh, she was about 16 years old. Mentally, she was fine, quite sharp, actually, but trapped in a body that was like a prison. Her, her limbs were so twisted and contorted, she couldn't even hold a glass of water to give herself a drink. She was completely unable to communicate. Uh, she would try to speak, but just this series of high-pitched noises that were impossible to decipher. The only way you could uh, speak with her at all was to ask yes or no questions and try to guess whether she was nodding or shaking her head, though the muscles in her neck never really cooperated with her brain. So it was very difficult, and my heart sank when I saw her wheeled into our youth meeting because I thought, how is she going to fit here? I mean, how does a kid like that fit in with all these other normal kids? Well, they wheeled her to the front. She sat in the front row. And, uh, and, and she kept coming to youth because she loved my preaching. I told you mentally she was fine. <laughs> Probably a little more discerning than most of you. And, um, and, and so she would come. And, and I remember one particular youth meeting, I, I made a joke and everyone laughed. <clears throat> and then I moved on to my serious point, at which time she began violently convulsing in her wheelchair. And, uh, you know, everyone went quiet and, and people looked at her and looked at me like she's having a seizure, do something. I'm thinking, I know how to preach, I don't know first aid. And, and then as I'm looking at her convulsing, I, I saw a glint in her eye and I realized, it, it's all right, she's not having a seizure. She was just a little late getting the joke. Some people get it immediately and other people like fluorescent lights. It's like, got it. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I said, it's all right, it's, it's okay, don't, don't worry. I, I said, Janice, you you're just getting the joke, aren't you? She's got this big smile on her face. I said, listen, if you interrupt my preaching one more time, we'll take your wheelchair to the top of a hill and let you go. <laughs> well, everyone looked at me horrified that you would say such a thing to a kid in a wheelchair. Well, Janice just started shaking all the more violently with a huge smile on her face. Because think about it, in Australia, the more we love you, the more we tease you. This was the first time in her life anyone had felt comfortable enough to actually tease her a little bit. She came to youth every week and we teased her mercilessly. We just want to make her feel welcome. <laughs> we had a youth camp and uh, her parents came to me and uh, they said, can Janice come on camp? And I said, well, honestly, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't think it's a good idea. They said, why not? I said, well, I can't think of a single thing on camp that she'll be able to do. She'll spend the entire weekend watching everybody else have fun. Her parents said if she could go on camp, it would be the greatest thing she's ever experienced in her life. She never gets to hang out with kids around her. Just to be there would be the great. And for us as parents, we could think of nothing better for it. Please, would you let her go? So we said, sure. So they had this big motorhome that was fitted out with all this stuff to care for. It was like a hospital arrived on camp. And so she was there. I kind of forgot that she was there, to be honest. We had a guest speaker called Jürgen Matesius, a great Australian. And uh, so anyway, he, uh, he and I, uh, midway through the camp, were in the, uh, the um, kitchen area and we were having a coffee when a young um, kid um, came running into the room and said, quick, you've got to come down to the lake. 
and the urgency in his voice and his disposition was such that we didn't stop to ask why. We just immediately got up and walked pretty briskly down to the lake. Now, what had happened was the young people had gone canoeing. And they were all canoeing and having a great time. And Janice was in her wheelchair on the side of the lake watching. And some of the teenage boys went up to Janice, apparently, and asked, do you want to go canoeing? And, and they swore that she nodded. And so what they did was they got some rope and they tied three canoes together. And then they found slats of timber and tied the timber to the top of the canoes. And then they tied her wheelchair to the top of all that and rowed her out into the middle of the lake. What amused me later was the realisation they'd, they'd gone to the trouble to put a life jacket on her. How many of you know when you're strapped in a metal wheelchair, if that thing capsizes, you are going straight to... And that's exactly what happened. And the, you know the weird thing was when I, when I spoke at her funeral... Um, no, I'm joking, Ed. It's all true up until I said, good morning, welcome to church. Um, we're standing there looking at this girl sitting bolt upright in a wheelchair in the middle of a lake with this stupid grin on her face. And Jürgen, the guest speaker, he says to me, I love your youth group. And I said, I know. Isn't the worship amazing? I mean, they really press in. He said, no, not the way they worship. I said, the way they respond to the preaching. I mean, they take notes. They're so responsive to your messages. He said, no, 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 not the worship, not the word. That. And he points at this kid who is twisted and contorted, imprisoned in this body that refuses to work. And he says, that is the most amazing youth group that a kid like that can come into a place like this. And instead of being written off, instead of being pushed to the side, who knows why she's like that or what happened? All we know is this, God's not finished with her yet. And if God's not finished, then she's not finished. And I say again, the church is the most unique place in the community because it's the only place that you can walk in beaten up by life, a little bruised, a little bloodied by your past, and you're not going to get 10 people tell you it's because of this, this, or this. I haven't got a clue why you are the way you are. All I know is that God's not finished. And if God's not finished, then neither are you. And so you can come into this church bloodied, beaten up, bruised, battered by life. But I pray you keep on coming because there's only one thing we are absolutely certain of, and that is God is not finished. And if God's not finished, neither are you. If God's not finished, neither are you. There are three important and profound implications for our lives. Here's the first one. If God's not finished, I can continue. Someone asked me, back home what are you going to speak about at connect church on the sunday and so i said that the title of my message is god's not finished i began to wax lyrical sort of run my message by them a little bit run it up the flagpole see if it flew i said you need to realize i am a masterpiece in progress i'm a work under construction my friend looked at me and said yeah you're a real piece of work <laughs> i don't think he really caught you know the vibe of what i was trying to express but ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says i am god's workmanship in other words, God is working on me. Have you ever lived in a house whilst it's being renovated? How many of you know it's a weird situation? You've got all kinds of noises going on. There's sawdust and offcuts lying around. There's stuff being ripped up over here and ripped up over there. It's chaotic and challenging trying to live in a house while it's being renovated. I'd prefer not to do that. I'd prefer to just have a penthouse down on the beach somewhere. And here's my cell number. Call me when it's done. Well, in life, we live in the house while it's being renovated. So if you hear some weird noises coming from me in the foyer after the service, don't get all upset. God's not finished with me yet. 
If you're around me and you trip up over an ugly off-cut, don't get all bitter and offended and say, I'm never going back to that church. I can't believe what hypocrites they are. God's not finished yet. He's working on me. I'm being renovated. And if you hang around a while, you'll see what an incredible dwelling God is planning for me to be. But don't you dare write off as a wreck what is really an amazing reno. If you just give it a little time. By the way, if you'll give me that grace, I'll give that same grace to you. Trust me, looking at some of you, you need it more than I do. I'm not saying imperfections don't matter. But I am saying when you understand God's not finished yet, you find the grace to keep functioning even in the midst of your own imperfections. If I had a dollar for every person who said, no, I can't do anything in church because I'm just not ready, that I'm not, I'd have two dollars. So many people say, oh, well, you know, pastor, I'd like to be involved, but I just don't feel like I'm. You'll never be ready. This side of heaven, there will never be a moment where everything is perfect. God's working on you. You're an amazing renovation, but, but, but it's being continued. And whilst God continues to work, you can continue in the midst of it. Stop waiting for everything to be done. God will always be working on you until the day you stand in his presence, finally perfected. But until that day, God's not finished. And if God's not finished, you can keep going. I'm not saying imperfections don't matter. I'm just saying when you understand, God's still working on me. Yeah, there's some things I've got to change. Yeah, there's some things that aren't quite right. There's a few things I'm really not proud of, but God's still working. And so I can continue whilst he works. The blind man didn't panic when his vision was blurred. He didn't throw in the towel when he realized things weren't all together yet because he knew and understood God isn't finished. And people who understand this principle can live with contradictions. I'm not saying accept them, but they can live with them continuing whilst God changes them. And understanding this for me, I can give you the same grace and allow you to continue realizing you're not perfect yet and you're still going to make some mistakes. But if God's not finished, you can continue because he's working on you as you go. Number two, if God's not finished, I can change. The blind man doesn't stay blind. Things don't stay hazy. In fact, in the space of four verses and a hundred words, it's amazing how much does change. If God's not finished yet, I can continue and I can change. In Psalm 71 verse 7, David makes this statement, I have become a surprise and a wonder to many. I love that. You know why we haven't won the community to Christ? Because we don't surprise anyone and no one wonders about us. It's a crime to bore people in the name of Jesus. Not this church, but I've been to churches where, man, they make God so boring and I have to tip my hat to them because to take the God of the universe and make him boring must have required a lot of effort and thought. How do you make the God who created sunsets every evening boring? I mean, there's not just a moth. There's 10,000 different species of moth. How do you make a God who puts that much effort into moths boring? Man, some churches work really hard to make God boring. David says, I've become a surprise and a wonder to many. We should live such lives that people are surprised. And they wonder, what is that? I, I made it a goal of mine never to tell anyone about Jesus. I know you're thinking poorly of me, but wait. There's a punchline coming. I made it my goal to live my life in such a way that people become so curious about me, they ask me, what's with you? And, and then I get to share rather than tell but it's not in response to me trying to tell them about Jesus, but them honestly wondering, what's with you? Some of you have been wondering that since I started preaching. 
But we ought to live lives that are full and expansive and interesting. Don't bore your neighbors or your family members in Jesus' name. David says, I've become a surprise and a wonder to many. I pray every person in this town wonders about us. Who are those people? Man, there's something about them. But that's another sermon. The first three words of the statement intrigue me. He says, I have become. David says, I have become. Which is amazing because I thought he was born with a crown on his head. I thought he was born with a slingshot in his hand. But apparently he was born, like many other people, and this is quite common, he was born as a baby. <laughs> Happens more often than you would think. Trust me, I researched it. Google says. And, and he was just born a baby, but he evolved. He, he changed. He, he says, I have become. If God's not finished yet, then neither are you, which means you can change. Here's a revelation. You can change the way you dress. Please, some of you. You can change the way you talk. You can change your style and taste in music. You can change the way you think about certain subjects. You can change the level at which you live. Thank God I've changed. I'm not the same person I was. I've changed because the Lord hasn't finished with me. And therefore, I'm continuing to evolve. One of the most crazy things you can say about yourself, well, that's just who I am. How dumb is that? Well, that's just, why if God's not finished, would, would you declare yourself done? God says, I'm not finished yet. Say, so, ah, oh, this is who I am. One, one of the stupidest things you can say to your spouse is, well, that's just who you're married. Well, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have married. No, no, that's not just who, you're different to who you were when you got, I mean, men, you wake up with a different woman every morning. Same name, same woman you married, but she's different. That's the exciting thing about being a husband. You never know who is going to be on the other side of the bed. Some of you responded a little too enthusiastically to that. I will buy you lunch and dinner and lodging this evening. But the truth is, you're not married to the same person who was at that ceremony 10 or 20 or 30, nor would you want to be because that would be a despite to the grace of God which says we're to go from faith to faith, glory to glory, strength to strength. Not only can I change, I ought to be changing. You know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we all are being transformed from glory to glory. Some of us have used our personalities as excuses for lousy marriages or poor relationships with our kids or for not grasping opportunities that God brings our way as if our personalities are sacrosanct and irremovable. No, no, your personality can change and evolve and, 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 and round out. And so if God's not finished, I can change. I thank God for being in a church led by people who are committed to change. Who simply understand one thing about me. God's not finished with you, McPherson. And so if God's not finished with you, you're not finished. And therefore, we're going to have the kind of church where we're continually doing new things, singing new songs, thinking new thoughts, uh, pursuing new initiatives. But because I ought to be changing and evolving. If God's not finished, I can continue. If God's not finished, I can change. Third and finally, if God's not finished, I can be confident. Ephesians 1 verse 6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing. Now, now listen to where Paul derives his confidence, because we all need confidence. Confidence is key. And Paul says, here's my confidence in this very thing. He who began a good work will complete it. God always finishes what he begins. And Paul says, that's the source of my confidence. In other words, he doesn't look within for confidence. He looks up. 
He doesn't say, this is my confidence. I'm very well educated. I've got a lot of money in the bank. I'm married well. I'm this or I'm that. He says, no, no, my confidence doesn't come from within. Because on any given day, I can be confident or incredibly despondent according to what's happening within and around me. But when I look up, I am always confident because he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. My mother calls me the great alpha male. She says, you start a lot of things, James. Thank God Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He always finishes what he begins. And the Bible says, if God began a good work in you, how many of you know you didn't get started on the Christian journey yourself? It wasn't your initiative. It was the grace of God that got you going. And it's the grace of God that will bring you to the finish line. And he always finishes what he starts. If you visited that carpentry shop in Nazareth, there were no half-made chairs and no almost finished tables. Jesus has always finished what he starts. On the cross, he called out that wonderful phrase, it is finished. And then it was done. And God will do the same for you and I. He always finishes what he starts. And that's the source of our confidence. When you understand this, you don't get bent out of shape or twisted and bitter. Think about Abraham, for instance. I mean, Abraham was promised a wonderful land of uh, inheritance and blessing, prosperous and fertile land. He, he traveled towards the land, and this was his mistake. He, he took one of his, his relatives. I always find road trips are best done without the family. And, um, but he, he took Lot with him, and, and you know they started quarreling, and so they decided to part ways. And so Abraham, who's been promised wonderful, prosperous, fruitful Fertile land says to his uh, nephew, you choose. What, what do you want? There, there's fertile land over here, desert wasteland over there. And Lot, of course, says, well, I'll have the fertile land. And so Abraham, who's got the promise, trudges off into desert, dry, barren wilderness. But Abraham never grumbles or complains. He never panics. God's promised him fertile land. And he's trudging through dry, barren wasteland. But Abraham simply understood God's not finished yet. Listen, some of you are walking through dry wasteland at the moment. It's like nothing grows, nothing's being fruitful, nothing's prospering. You're tempted to throw in the towel and think, well, it's all for naught. And I just must have imagined all of those things long ago. Listen, let your confidence not be in what you see around you. Let your confidence be in the character and nature of God who always finishes what he begins. If it's God who began you on the journey, God will get you to the finish line. He always finishes what he starts and if you're trudging through barren wasteland then clearly God's not finished so don't get all upset and bitter grab another coffee and just expect you know what at some point I'm going to get through this wasteland and enter into the inheritance that God always had for me think about Joseph in scripture Joseph was promised you to be a great leader and from the moment he was promised leadership, his life went backwards at a million miles an hour. Some of you had a great word from God. And it seems like ever since you got that promise, everything's gone wrong. For 13 years, Joseph's life spins out of control. He's promised he'll be a leader and he ends up a servant. He's promised he'll be in charge. He ends up in prison for a rape he did not commit. The interesting thing about Joseph is that in the prison house, in the slave house, he's just got this quiet confidence that belies his circumstance. He's in the jail. He's in, now I know everyone in jail is innocent, but he really is. And all the other characters are all whinging and complaining about how they were hard done by, by the magistrate. And, uh, you know, if anyone's got a tale of, well, it's Joseph. But he's not telling everyone how hard done he's been. He's listening to everybody else and trying to encourage them. And I'm thinking, how could you be so encouraging when your problems are far worse than theirs? 
It's because he was confident that God's not finished. He was in a prison, but he just knew this is not what God intended. So clearly God's not finished. And God always finishes what he begins. Some of you feel like you're in prison. You feel like life has conspired to trap you, to push you into a corner from which it seems there's no escape. But listen, God's not finished, so neither are you. So don't get all bent out of shape. Don't go looking for victims that you can tell about how bad things are. That's why they become victims, because they become the recipients of your vomit. Just, just be quietly confident. Listen, God's not finished yet. And so I might feel like I'm trapped, but ultimately God will find a way. He'll open a door that, that seems impossible because God always finishes what He starts. Don't get all despondent and start to feel hemmed in and and pressed in. Don't start living small thinking this is it. God's not finished, so neither are you. So so just let a quiet confidence enter your heart. And if you're in the middle of a slave house or a prison house, well, serve well and just realize it'll, it'll turn. This isn't forever. God will bring you through. Let me give you one more illustration. Or maybe 10. Who? One. I saw the look on your faces. You're thinking, I'm glad the Lord always finishes what he starts. But will this ever end? David is promised he'll be a king. And from the moment he's promised a throne, he spends the next months and years running from cave to cave, being chased by Saul, who's trying to kill him. And there comes a moment when David is standing over a sleeping Saul, and David can end everything right now. He can get rid of his nemesis in a moment, slit his throat. And all of his men say, do it. I wonder if you've ever been in a position where one shortcut can solve all your problems. Just a little bit of maneuvering, just a little bit of scheming, and you can have what God promised you. And all you've got to do is manipulate a few situations, lie to a couple of people, and you'll have it. These men say, just do it after all. And David refuses to turn a hand against Saul and just instead keeps this quiet confidence. If God promised me the throne and I'm in caves... Clearly, God's not fit, but He always finishes what He begins. So my confidence is not in the ability of my own hand to bring things about. But my confidence is God will make a way, even where there seems, and I'm not going to manipulate scheme or try and maneuver. I'm just going to keep walking in purity of heart and allow God to turn it when He is ready, confident that He will. You know, so many Christians twist and scheme and squirm and try to manipulate things instead of just being... And it's because they just don't have a confidence that God isn't finished. And if God's not finished, neither am I. And God always finishes what He begins so I can be quietly... When you understand this truth for yourself, it allows you to walk through wasteland. It allows you to feel hemmed in and cornered. It allows you to have other people come against you and yet doesn't rob you of your confidence. It allows you to have a peace and a serenity that belies the circumstances when you simply understand not why you're in this predicament, not why this happened, not why it happened to you and not someone else. Who knows? Just know this. God isn't finished. And if God's not finished, neither are you. Now, if you don't know that for yourself, it's impossible to give it to someone else. But here's the wonderful thing about the grace of God. Having freely received that revelation for me, now I can give it to you. And now we've got a community of people where you can come through those doors bloodied, beaten, bruised by life and you're not going to get five pat answers. You're not going to get a whole lot of people shake a finger and say, well, this is what you need to... I've got no idea why you are the way you are. But I do know this. God's not finished. So neither are you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness toward us. 
Lord, I thank you that you created us on purpose for a purpose and your purpose always prevails. It might be one minute to midnight and yet you are still able to perform all that you promised. Lord, I thank you for the promises you've given people, the words you've dropped in people's hearts and spirits. And today I thank you that you are well able to perform it. Lord, I pray for people who are struggling, despondent, despairing, that despite all their efforts, they haven't gotten as far as they thought they would. Maybe their family, their business, their own physical health, maybe their own character development. They're thinking, why aren't I further along? Father, I thank you that you never come to us with criticism or complaint. You rather keep stretching out a hand of love and encouraging us. Just keep on keeping on. And that you will continue to touch us again and again and again if necessary until finally we stand in your presence, perfected, reflecting your glorious image. Lord, I pray let this be true for every person. In Jesus' name I ask it. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks, James. Great word. Come on, let's show some appreciation. Great word. Great weekend. And look, just before we close off the service, to, uh, I just want to take an opportunity to, uh, to, to, well, to give people an opportunity. If you haven't given your life to Christ, to, if, you, if you're here today and you know what James is talking about, what the experience you've had today, you, you know you need to get right with God. Like I did some 30 or so years ago in a meeting just like, like this, I could sense that God was calling me. The Bible says He knocks on the door of our heart, and if we would open that door, He would, he would come in. And so if you're here today and you know you need to get right with God, I don't want you to leave this place without having that opportunity. So I'd ask with every head bowed and every eye closed right across this auditorium as we've heard from James it's not about the fact of how bad we are the the power of the gospel is how good he is and what he has done Uh, we say the good book is called the good book the Bible is often called the good book and it's it's called the good book not because the people in the book are good but because the God in the book is good and so if you're here today, you've heard the words, you've heard that which is spoken, but you, you know right now the Spirit of God is speaking to your life that you need to get right, right with God. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while. Maybe you've been, but you know your life is not right. And yet you're saying, man, I need to get right with God. Today in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer that just says, Lord Jesus, come. Forgive me of my sin. Come and wash me, cleanse me. Come and dwell in my heart. If, and as I pray that prayer, if you're saying that, that that prayer is for me, Pastor, that prayer, can I be a part of that prayer? Wherever you're sitting right now, every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to be included in that prayer, you know you need to get right with God today. Wherever you're sitting, would you just put your hand up high and say, that's me, Pastor. Would you include me in that prayer? I need to get right with you today. Is there anyone here today you know you need to get right with Jesus Christ? Is there anyone, you, you, you know, you've got to respond to that today just nice and high so I can see I don't want to miss out thank you anyone else thank you Sorry, anyone else you know you need to get right with God today don't miss this opportunity anyone else just nice and high just put it thank you I right, slip those hands down is there anyone here who should have put their hand up you know you should have put your hand up but you didn't 
For whatever reason, maybe you're worried about what people will think. You're worried whether God will accept for it. Uh, like I said, it's not about how bad you are. It's about how good he is. If you know you should have put your hand up, but you didn't, can you put your hand up right now? Come on. You know you need to get right with God here today. Anyone? Amen. All right, we're going to all pray this prayer together for those who put their hand up, all of us together. Let's pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I come to you today, a sinner in need of a Savior. Today I would ask you that you would cleanse me of my sin. I turn from my wicked ways and give my life to you to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. This I ask in Jesus' name.